0: The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Join me as we pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope that we have well, we pray this morning as we worship you through giving, recognizing that you are the giver of every good gift, that, that you would be honored in the way that we give today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, this morning as the ushers pass uh, the offering place, I want to remind you that next Sunday uh, at 9 o'clock we will be having our... Um, meeting or gathering to discuss the budget for the coming 2019 fiscal year. So come at 9 o'clock next Sunday morning. We'll meet here in uh, the auditorium. Uh, If you have any questions about that, we're going to email out uh, probably tomorrow the finalized budget uh, for the coming year. So look over that. Come with any questions that you might have, and we'll be glad to answer them for you. Next uh, Sunday morning. Well, this morning we uh, begin. I want to thank Jessica for a reading Isaiah forty-two, one through nine for us. Uh, we begin uh, our Advent series. Even though apparently, technically, according to Siri, Advent doesn't start till next week. We're going to start this week. Uh, I'm Donnie Mathis, one of the pastors here at TCC. And in my day job, I teach New Testament and Greek, and serve as the director for the Center for Teaching Excellence at North Greenville University. And over the course of the last few days, our country and economy has turned from thankfulness for family or friends, and uh, hopefully you could say that you were thankful for both of those, uh, and even more than that, to what I fear can best be described as an astounding sense of greed seeking to mask itself in the quest to find just the right gift for just the right person at just the right price. And so during this season where we should be turning our hearts and minds to rejoice in the fact that God sent His Son, the one whom Paul described as an indescribable, in fact the indescribable gift, God, we should be celebrating the fact that God sent His Son into the world to redeem sinners... And to begin the process of restoring his creation, we tend to obsess over the latest and greatest age-appropriate toys. So for the next six Sundays, we are going to investigate six passages, most of which have poetic and song-like features, so that we can celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and focus ourselves on the worship of King Jesus. Jesus. This morning, we are going to begin our study with a series of passages that are sometimes called the servant songs of Isaiah. And Jessica read one of those just a moment ago. While these passages are not significantly more poetic than the passages that surround them in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 6, 54 through 11, and 52.13 through 53.12. Now don't have a heart attack. We're not going to examine each of these passages in depth. We're going to be done in time for lunch. They stand out. There is, As one author says, there's a change of the atmosphere around these texts. Because Isaiah is presenting to his original readers a very mysterious figure. Whom God has called before he was even born. That's what we learn in chapter 49. To complete an even more mysterious plan to bring mercy-filled justice, which frankly, because of their sins, should be a scary term, to both Israel and the nations. So let's read together Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. This is a rather long text, but I think it... It bookends what we saw in chapter 42. The Bible says here, in Isaiah 52, 13, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured... That he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant. Like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. And yet, he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for peace was upon him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich, rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would bless the reading and the instruction of your word that your spirit would be among us and accomplish great things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to, to put ourselves in the shoes of Isaiah's audience and to hear these words anew and afresh and to recognize the greatness and the beauty of what you prophesied through Isaiah, was going to come to pass to restore your order to creation, to bring your wholeness and peace and justice. And Lord, I pray that you would break us today of our willful disobedience, of our idolatry, So that we can see the beauty of your plan to bring order back to your broken creation. That we would see it in the fullness of its beauty and long for your justice to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1983, a new television show premiered and I think it was on Friday night's. ...that this then 11 or 12 year old boy loved. It was the A-Team. It was awesome. If you've only seen the somewhat recent movie... ...you can really have no appreciation of the awesomeness of this show... ...with George Papard as Hannibal Smith and Mr. T. I mean, Mr. T's in the show, it's got to be great, right? The premise of the show was established in the opening of every episode. It went like this. In 1972, a crack commando unit was sent to prison by a military court for a crime they didn't commit. These men promptly escaped from maximum security stockade to the Los Angeles Underground. This is getting cooler by the second, right? Today, still wanted by the government, they survive as soldiers of fortune. If you have a problem... If no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the A-Team. This read was then followed by machine gun fire that spelled out the A-Team. I mean, how good can this get for an 11 or 12-year-old kid? Now, you can debate the merits of my parents allowing me to watch this show and the violence that was in it. I understand that. But I always loved when it reached the end of the episodes rather circuitous and I have to admit now honestly rather maybe beyond implausible plot Hannibal Smith would light a cigar and say I love it when a plan comes together. Now the irony of this was that what the actual plan was as it was laid out never really did seem to come together. It never did. When we get to the end of our journey this week and over the next few weeks, we will be able to sit back and worship our great God in spirit and truth because we will be able to see His work to bring His blessing to His creation that He declared In Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28 that he was going to accomplish. When we reach the end of our journey and worship the forever King Jesus. We will have to sit back and say, I don't know how this plan came together. But our great God was at work from Genesis chapter 1. To Revelation chapter 22, in a very circuitous and frankly, if not for the fact that He is the sovereign God, exceedingly implausible plan to bring His blessing, His peace, and His justice to His creation. So, this morning, we want to begin with this question Who is the servant of the Lord? Now for those of you who've grown up in church and might want to throw your hand up in the air really quickly like this, like, I know, I know, I know. I want you to just slow your roll for a second and put yourself in the shoes of someone in Isaiah's audience. They've heard the prophet's warning about the destruction of the exile that God is about to bring upon his people. The northern kingdom is going to be destroyed. The southern kingdom is going to be destroyed. This people that has not known God's order, has not practiced God's justice for the fatherless and the widow, they are going to know because ultimately of their idol worship what the justice of God is against sin. They will know his wrath. But in Isaiah 40, Isaiah picks up on some themes that have been hiding in the weeds of the first 39 chapters of the book and says, Comfort is coming to my people. So they've begun to hear that God is going to give them hope on the other side of this removal from the land that God has given them. And by the way... Just remember that this is just a repeating of what we've seen before. As far back as Genesis chapter 3, God in his grace kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. And this is going to result in many getting booted out of a particular place that is going to end up in God accomplishing his purpose. And now they're hearing about this servant who will be used by God to bring justice to the nations But who could it be? Who could this servant be? Because the answer is not maybe as clear, at least initially, as we might have thought. Well, the first answer is Israel. There are several texts in Isaiah itself where he defines Israel as this servant. So let's look at this one in Isaiah Forty-nine, One of our servant songs, listen to what Isaiah says here. Coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord has called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hands. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. And then he said to me, You are my servant. Israel, there it is, in whom I will be glorified. And again, in Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you. I haven't rejected you. So there's option one, Israel as a people. Now, here's the problem. Israel as a people. Israel as a people is a mess. Israel as a people are the ones that God is getting ready to eject from the land, that God is getting ready to judge by the power of the Assyrians and eventually the power of the Babylonians. So how in the world can this messed up, broken, fallen, destructive, idol-worshipping people be the solution to the problem? I don't know. Which leads to some other options. Well, maybe it's the prophet. Now look at what we just read in Isaiah chapter 49. In the first two verses of that very passage where Isaiah says that Israel is the one. He says, I was called before I was born, so maybe it is the prophet. And then we look at verses 4 through 6. But I myself said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing in futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord. My God is my strength. It is not enough for you to be my servant raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a life for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So now look at all of those places where the prophet says I and me and my You can understand why this is a little confusing, I hope. The first three verses point to Israel as a nation, and now these next three verses right after it say, the prophet? Hmm. Well, it gets even more strange. The plot, as they say, shall thicken. Now, Just a few chapters before or after, depending on which of the songs you're talking about, we're going to see something said about Cyrus. Now here's the crazy thing about this. Cyrus has not even been born yet. Cyrus is not even a king yet. And God is going to name him as a king from the pagan nations whom God is going to use to restore his people. That's calling your shot. So look at what it says there. Who, now this is referring back earlier in the passage to the Lord your Redeemer, says to Cyrus, My shepherd, Cyrus, the shepherd of God's people, he's a pagan. He will fulfill all my pleasure. And says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt and of the temple its foundation will be laid. And by the way, all these things happen. The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed. It's the same kind of word used for the Messiah. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings, to open doors before him and even city gates will not be shut. So why is this so important? All three of these, they don't seem to make a whole lot of sense as the deliverer of God's people, but all three of them are pointing to something about the greatness of. God, if God can name Cyrus a pagan before he's even born and establish a kingdom and a throne, when, I, when Israel reads Isaiah in the exile and they see, hmm, there's a new king and his name is Cyrus. Haven't I heard that name before? Maybe my God is establishing his order in the earth. Now you say, well, how in the world could they not have known that this was the Messiah? Well, let's just read in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. Now, this is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who's leaving leaving Jerusalem. He's been there for the feast, and now he's going back home to Ethiopia and... Philip has been up in Samaria. The gospel has gone to the Samaritans. Great things are happening. And the Spirit of the Lord says to Philip, you go down to Gaza, which is in the middle of the desert. At least the road is in the middle of the desert. And you go there and God's going to do something great. And he leaves and he goes. This is what happens. Let's begin reading in verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and a high official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The Spirit told Philip, go and join the chariot. So what's happening here is essentially Philip is running alongside of the chariot and this is what happens next. So when Philip ran up to it, he heard, the reading, heard him reading the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? So just put this in your mind. Philip running alongside of the chariot. Chariot going along. Man reading aloud. Philip says, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Probably not as easily as I just said it. Panting, maybe even. Now look at what happens next. The man says this. How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? Explain this to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him, which I'm sure Philip greatly appreciated. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. We just read it. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as the lamb is silent before its shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him, who will describe his generation for his life is taken from the earth. And now listen to what the eunuch says. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself? The prophet? Or someone else? Israel? Or Cyrus? He doesn't know. And we're left saying, it's the Messiah. Why? Why? Didn't anyone and everyone recognize that these passages were prophecies about the Lord's Messiah, who would show the might and the power of God like Moses did in the Exodus? That's a good question, isn't it? That's what we're going to try to figure out. So let's look at the servant's mission. Look over in chapter 42. So this is our question. Why didn't Isaiah's readers immediately think that he was referring to the Messiah? So let's look at the mission. The mission is this. The first thing that we see in the mission is that he's, and we're going to see all of these in 42, 1 to 4, justice, he's going to be a light to the nations, he is going to be for the weak, and he's going to be for the fulfilling of God's Promises. So let's look at what Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, has to say. Particularly, verse 1. I have put my spirit on him. So notice here, this promise of the giving of the spirit, this is an identifier of the fact that God's kingdom and God's reign is going to come. So this servant is. ...is going to have God's Spirit. And then notice the last part of verse 1 here. He will bring justice to the nations. So the first thing we need to do here is is define what this justice is. So he's going to bring justice to the nations... ...but God's justice in this context is not just... ...now keep this in mind... ...is not just a judicial declaration... ...but the restoring of his, that is God's, wise rule in creation. When Isaiah says that this servant is going to bring justice to the nations... ...he's not just saying that they are going to be called to account. Now it's not excluding that... But what he is getting at here is something even larger and greater than this. Because Isaiah, for chapter after chapter, is on an attack against the foolishness of the worship of idols. And he wants them to recognize that the supreme demonstration of the fact that the world is out of order, that the world is in a mess, is the worship of idols. And the same thing, frankly, is still true today. So he's saying here that this servant is going to bring justice. He's going to bring God's order back to creation. If you think back earlier on this past fall when we were in Genesis chapter 1 that's what Genesis chapter 1 is all about it's about God establishing order in this world that he has made he is establishing these this realm and then he establishes those who rule over the various parts of the realm and he reaches this final conclusion that he makes men and man and woman in his own image to rule over everything that God has made in this creation and they are to rule rule as his co-regents and they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what happens when they rebel? They want to be God. Throw off his wise rule and order and it brings destruction to all of the creation. And we've already recognized this in our study through Genesis that God is already at work. But now Israel this family of Abraham is just like the rest of the world. So how is this servant going to fulfill the mission? But it's not just justice. He's going to be also a light to the nations. Through the servant, God will do something new. They are to sing a new song. And in singing this new song and in God doing this new thing, he is showing that the gods of the nations are worthless. This declaration that he will be a light to the nation is one more piece of Isaiah's concentrated attack on the idols of the nations. The pagans were on this hamster wheel of history going round and round and round and round. It just repeated itself over and over and over. New king, same as the old king. New God, same as the old God. You see, here's the problem. The pagans were fundamentalists at heart. they would say, when presented with the facts of the one true and living God, we've never seen anything like this. We've never heard of a God who establishes the beginning and establishes the end and establishes everything in between. We've never heard of a God who creates out of nothing because nothing is is ever new. But the God of Israel established how the world began and he's established how it will end he alone is god and he's sending this servant to proclaim his reign and to bring it into being and the third part of this that we see is that it's for the weak it's for the weak you see this new king is not like the old king in the ancient Near Eastern world, just like ours, the king's rule in the end really only benefited the powerful. But this king was going to restore God's order so that everyone from the least to the greatest would be able to live under God's wise rule and reign and worship him forever. Forever. You see, he is not even, as he is described, going to break a reed. He is going to tend it and fix it and restore God's order for everyone in God's creation. Because all people are made in the image of God. And then, he's going to fulfill God's promises This is the passage we studied last week. You see, history repeats itself in the Bible. But it's always moving toward a goal that God is going to accomplish. So look at what we see here. I will make you. Notice he's talking to one person. This is key for what's going to happen next. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is the hint for where we're going. One man representing a whole people. Just as we began in Genesis chapter 1 with God's purpose to bless rather than it being the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, everything changes here in Genesis 12 when God makes the promise, I will do it. You're not going to have to do it. I'm going to do it. Now, let's see how we move forward from here. So, our next question Will the servant's mission succeed? Now the answer to this, very shortly, quickly, is yes. There are several passages here. I'm not going to read them all. You can go back and read them yourselves. Okay? They're here on the screen. I'll even make this available for you. All right, so all of these are saying, Isaiah 42, 5 through 7, this is going to succeed. Look at what he says here. Who created the heavens, stretched them out. Why is it going to succeed? Because God is the creator. God creates. That's reason number one: this plan will succeed. God creates, and he creates out of nothing. All right, number two, this is in 49.6. In Isaiah 49:6, we see that God makes. So God creates, God makes. In 49:6, I will make you a light to the nations. What did he say to Abraham? Through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. I will do it. I will make you the servant a light to the nation. Now, next. Isaiah chapter 50 verses 8 through 9. Not only does God create, not only does God make, God vindicates in truth. In Isaiah chapter 50 verses 8 through 9, we can see that God will vindicate the mission of the servant. This will be accomplished. Then Isaiah 52 13. God promises success. My servant will be successful. And then lastly, God promises a people. In Isaiah 53, in the last part of verse 11 through chapter 53, verse 12, the first part, He will see light and be satisfied by His knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil. So, let's review. God creates, God makes, God vindicates, God promises a success, and God promises a people. Now, this is where things kind of go off the rails. If you do it according to conventional wisdom. All of these demonstrations of power are going to be accomplished in weakness. All of these demonstrations of success are going to be accomplished in the last way that we would ever expect. Because there was, I'll just be honest, some selective choosing in those verses. You see, here's where we're going to see it accomplished. The plan is accomplished because the servant is disgraced, because the servant is despised, and because the servant is dead. And I think now we've found our answer As to why it is that really no one, at least not many, in the first century thought that the servant was the Messiah. Because in chapter 52 Isaiah says that God is going to reveal his mighty arm. The arm of the Lord will be revealed, and the arm of the Lord is this mighty hand and outstretched arm that crushed the Egyptians. This mighty arm that God is going to reveal is going to be seen in their view in the destruction and the crushing and the humiliation and the defeat of the nations so that they would take their place. They wanted might, they wanted power in a leader. They wanted somebody who was going to be nasty and fight for them. And isn't that the same thing that we do? We want to accomplish God's plan with pagan methods. That's why Jesus, when confronted, With Pilate. Will say that my kingdom does not come from out of this world. doesn't say it's not coming on the earth. But it's not going to come with your methods or means. It's going to come. Because I'm going to be disgraced. I'm going to be despised. And I'm going to be dead. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 50. Verses 6 through 7. Listen to what the servant says. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. That seems terrible. But notice what he says. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. See, even in this humiliation, even in this being mocked, He is not going to relent. Therefore, even though they would see this as humiliation, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I will not be put to shame. Though the world says you are despised and shameful, and that very clearly comes out in Isaiah 52 and 53, I am not in the end despised because I'm going to be vindicated by God. Chapter 53, we see that the servant is despised, mocked by people. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Notice even here, this is the raising of something dead to life. A root out of dry ground that simply does not happen. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. And then he will die. He will receive The wrath of God for sinners. And here is the beauty of all that God is doing to establish his order. He's the only one in all of creation who didn't deserve to be despised, disgraced. He didn't deserve it, but he willingly submitted himself to this destruction, this death, knowing the wrath of God so that sinners like us could be freed. So that a broken creation could be remade. So that God's order could return to his broken World. Look at what Isaiah says. Yet he himself bore our sickness, he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Notice, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. There was no sin in him, none whatsoever whatsoever. None, but he did it in our place because God in his justice must judge sin. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep be- silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck for my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. But notice, unlike everyone else in all of creation, he had done no violence, and he had not spoken deceitfully, and yet, and yet, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. The Lord was pleased to crush him. One commentator on this passage has said it far more beautifully than I would ever be able. The child has rebelled against the parent. Not only has the relationship been disrupted, but justice is offended. There is no shalom, there is no well-being because things are out of order, unbalanced until punishment has been meted out. All the good intentions in the world cannot restore the broken order but when the parent's authority has been recognized, when justice has been done, then both sides of the equation are balanced again. And this is what shalom, what well-being Is all about. This is what the servant has done for us. This is not in God being pleased to crush his servant. This is not a matter of a raging tyrant who demands violence on somebody to satisfy his fury. This is not divine child abuse. It is a God. The God who wants a whole relationship with his people. He wants order back in his creation. But is prevented from having it until incomplete justice. You see, any sacrifice of an animal, any judgment in the exile is never going to be enough. This cannot come, order cannot come until complete justice. Justice is satisfied. In the servant, he found a way to gratify his love and satisfy his justice. Paul says it like this that he would be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The one, the king, In the place of the many. And that's what his mission means for us. His mission means for us that sinners can know God's wise rule in hope and not in fear. God's wise rule is coming. Because Jesus ordered his life, if you read the Gospels, and you will see over and over and over and over again, time after time after time, that Jesus ordered his life to fulfill every word of these prophetic texts about the servant. And he accomplished it in his death and in his resurrection. You see, sin demands payment, and he made the offering in full. So we ask the question, who is the servant of the Lord? Jesus, the Messiah, is the servant of the Lord. Why couldn't Isaiah's or Jesus' contemporaries understand that the Messiah had to die in the place of his people? Here's why. They couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that the arm of the Lord could be revealed in a place of shame. They could not wrap their minds and frankly apart from the work of the Spirit we can't either wrap our minds around the fact that in this place of punishment and death and humiliation the power of God is revealed in the most telling way imaginable. God is overthrowing the wisdom of the world with His wisdom. God is overthrowing the kingdoms of the world with an eternal power that is demonstrated ultimately in his love. That's why Paul will say in Romans 5 that while we were still sinners, that God demonstrates his love... ...in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, while we were rebels, while we were broken... While we were fighting against God, he did all the work to show his love and to bring order to his creation. You see, we can't see what God is doing. They couldn't see what God is doing because they wanted a king just like the nations had. when what they needed was the perfect shepherd king who was willing to save his people by dying in their place and to restore order to his creation. God said that he would do it and in God the Son he did. God Has established his order. God has brought peace. The question for us this morning are we going to receive that peace through faith in Jesus Christ? And are we going to walk in that peace as ambassadors for his kingdom until that justice comes in perfection? And the forever king returns. But until that time, let us worship the just king because he has brought God's rule to the world. Let us worship the just king because he has brought God's wise rule to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We need to be broken of our idolatry. We need, just like Isaiah's contemporaries, to recognize that the hope of order and the hope of justice... Can only come through King Jesus. Lord, help us to think as kingdom citizens and not like the world. Lord, let us know that our vindication will come from you, that we do not have to fight. We do not have to be nasty to advance your kingdom. We simply need to rest in what you have done. That your power is made perfect in our weakness. that in our weakness, you will be shown to be strong. You will be shown to be king. You will be shown to be great, not us. Lord, this morning, I just pray that if there is anyone here today who has... has never known this grace that is revealed in the servant of the Lord who stood in their place and took their sins upon himself so that they could know the justice and wise rule of God and hope. Lord, I pray that if they've never placed their faith in Jesus, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would be Change that they could then look to a hopeful future where the one who would not even break a a bruised reed, they can look to a hopeful future and know that when you set things right and order things in perfection, that they can look to that day with peace and with joy and not in fear. Lord, do your work, because my words, they're feeble. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we have done, and all that we have studied, and that you would do your work to change all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.